Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. This week, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Beijing. He met senior Chinese officials, including Xi Jinping, China's president. Joe Biden, the U.S. president, said Blinken did a hell of a job on his trip. So are the two global giants going to ratchet down tensions that have been building over recent months? Here in Beijing, I had an important conversation with President Xi Jinping. And I had candid, substantive, and constructive discussions with my counterparts, Director Wang Yi and State Councillor Chen Gong. I appreciate the hospitality extended by our hosts. In every meeting, I stress that direct engagement and sustained communication at senior levels is the best way to responsibly manage our differences and ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. And I heard the same from my Chinese counterparts. We both agree on the need to stabilize our relationship. That was Blinken briefing the press after his meetings. On the agenda during the trip were Chinese concerns about the U.S.'s so-called de-risking economic strategy. That includes U.S. export controls that would stop China from accessing and making the world's most advanced semiconductors used in supercomputers and advanced weapons systems. From its side, the U.S. sought to re-establish military-to-military channels aimed at another type of de-risking. A near collision at sea. The Pentagon says a Chinese vessel cut across the bow of a U.S. warship in the Taiwan Strait, where it was conducting a freedom of navigation operation with Canada. China says the U.S. Navy's presence in the strait was hostile. It comes a week after the U.S. accused a Chinese fighter jet of a dangerous maneuver in international airspace above the South China Sea. The two sides' militaries, their warships, their planes, operate in close proximity in the Taiwan Strait and in the South and East China Seas. With Beijing and Washington hardly talking, there's a real danger that some mishap escalates into a political crisis that's hard to wind down. So was Blinken's trip a success? What comes next? And can the world, much of which is watching anxiously as US-China relations deteriorate, breathe a little easier? So... To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the show Amanda Shao, who is Crisis Group's China expert. Amanda, welcome back on. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be on. So, Amanda, broadly speaking, Blinken's trip is good news, right? Yeah, it's certainly a positive first step. You know, this was the first time since 2018 that a U.S. Secretary of State has visited China, so this was very much needed. To resuming more regular exchanges at the senior level, you know what we have seen thus far under the Biden administration has been sporadic meetings. They haven't been regular, but the positions of the two sides remain evidently far apart. I mean, it's a good start because without these sorts of communications. There is a risk that the two sides will misread each other's intentions、uh, and miscalculate. So that the visit itself took place、um, was progress. Do you think the Secretary of State was expecting to meet Xi Jinping? Well, you know, both sides really did their part to lower expectations around what this visit would produce, including on the question of whether Blinken would get that meeting with Xi. And so it wasn't until the very last minute that we knew that that meeting was going forward, and it's really important that it did occur. You know, even though Blinken got meetings with Qinggang and Wang Yi, Qinggang being the foreign minister and Wang Yi being the top、uh, foreign policy official in the Chinese system, that meeting with Xi is very important because it sends a signal from the highest level 
to the entire Chinese system that China is ready to uh, re-engage with the U.S. So we'll come back in a moment to how the actual trip unfolded. But Amanda, could we just go back a little bit? And so what you had the Bali G20 meeting in November last year, last time that U.S. President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met. And Blinken was initially going to follow up that meeting with a trip to Beijing. That was, of course, scuppered by the Chinese balloon uh, incident, the balloon shot down by the U.S. And that was the last time he came on the podcast was to talk about that incident. Do you want to just explain how we got from Bali to this meeting? Yeah, so when Xi and Biden met in Bali last year in November, that was seen as a small breakthrough. Up until then, the two leaders hadn't met in person. They had spoken over the phone, uh, but they had yet to meet in person. And there was a significant uptick in tensions, particularly in August of 2022, because of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And so that, you know, resulted in uh, large-scale military exercises by the PLA around Taiwan. And just to remind listeners, we talked about this during that last episode you were on, Amanda. So if people do want more details, please check that previous episode out. But basically, Nancy Pelosi, at the time of that visit to Taiwan, was Speaker in the lower house, the House of Representatives. Biden administration really didn't seem to want her to go to Taiwan, knowing it would anger Beijing. She went anyway, prompting this sort of angry demonstration of military muscle that you talked about. Right. And so... That was August. And so that they were able to meet in November was good. But more so, the statements that came out of that meeting, the tone uh, was more positive than before. And this also came after Xi Jinping had secured his third term in October. So, you know, at this meeting, the two sides reached, I would say, a degree of consensus on uh, one, they agreed to develop principles to guide the relationship. The U.S. the U.S. side would say principles to manage the competition responsibly. They agreed to resume discussions at the working level on a number of practical challenges that both sides face, so including food security, climate change, debt, etc. They seemed to indicate that they would resume some of the bilateral exchanges that had been cut off by China in response to Pelosi's visit. And they discussed some of the smaller confidence-building measures that the two could engage in, people-to-people exchange, that could sort of improve the atmosphere in the relationship. So that Bali meeting, I think, created a bit of optimism. And, you know, following that, it was expected that the two sides would resume these working-level discussions, and that maybe we would see more regular exchanges also at the senior level. But then the balloon incident happened uh, in February, and it wasn't just that the U.S. had shot down the balloon, but following the incident, the U.S. really played up the balloon threat that, uh, you know, was coming out of China. They went to many allies and partners, and, you know, they were really talking about this massive global balloon program that China had established. And following that, Blinken and Wang Yi spoke briefly on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference. And there, the U.S. aired their concerns publicly about China potentially thinking about providing lethal assistance for Russia to use in Ukraine. 
And so, in response, the Chinese were very cool to dialogue um, since since、uh, February and March of this year. But then, in the last couple of weeks, we started seeing a bit of thawing. Something that Biden actually himself previewed. You know, he he had sort of said a thaw is coming, and. Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi had met in Vienna as well, and apparently the head of the CIA also took a trip to China. And there were a number of small movements that indicated that the two sides were working towards some sort of visit. What do you think has sort of persuaded both sides that now was the time to try to take tensions down a notch or two? Well, I guess it's indicative that prior to Blinken's visit to China. That the Chinese were actually expressing more interest in meeting, having U.S. Commerce Secretary Raimondo and Treasury Secretary Yellen to come visit China, and in fact, Raimondo met with her Chinese counterpart in D.C. And the outputs of the meetings, you know, they suggest that a lot of the focus of the conversation was on economic issues. So. I think one of the reasons why the Chinese were interested in reengaging with the U.S. is they're frankly facing a number of、um, economic issues. They're dealing with a lot of unemployment,、uh, slower than expected economic recovery, and on top of that, what they're worried about isn't just that the U.S. has ramped up economic pressure on China, but that. The U.S. is making headway in convincing a number of countries to begin to consider their economic strategy vis-a-vis China. So, including the European Union, but also in the recent meeting in Japan of the G7. So, I think the economy was a big one for China, but I think both were perhaps animated. By the desire to appear as responsible powers, a couple of weeks ago, the Shangri-La Dialogue, which is this annual security forum that takes place in Singapore, happened, and you know it was pretty consistent and clear the sort of message from other countries. There has been growing concern over the hostility in the U.S.-China relationship, and I think both governments were under pressure to sort of show. That they were taking steps to lower tensions. In terms of Washington's motivations, I think that a key one is a real concern that the relationship has deteriorated to the point where miscalculation is a real risk. And so, for, I think for Washington,、uh, some of these security issues and the potential to misread each other's intentions、uh, was a key factor. And there, in essence, Amanda, you're talking about sort of military miscalculation. That one of these incidents in the Taiwan Straits or the South China Sea, that one of these incidents in which the two militaries are sort of rubbing up against each other, you know, is misinterpreted and potentially escalate. Right. So, on the one hand, an unintended military collision,、uh, but on the other, bigger intractable issues like Taiwan and the two sides' positions over Taiwan and the South China Sea. So China basically worried about its economy getting squeezed. Washington, at least, signalling that it's concerned about the risks of some sort of miscalculation, and both sides feeling pressure as the world looks at their deepening hostility with increasing sort of trepidation. So Blinken was there what a couple of days? Can you just run through us sort of what happened while he was there? 
Yeah, he was there for almost two days. He arrived to seven hours of discussions. Well, so he arrived. His first meeting was with Chinese Foreign Minister Qing Gang. That took place over the course of seven hours.、Uh, they reportedly went over by an hour, so I guess there was plenty to talk about.、Um, and they also had dinner together. The tone out of that meeting, because there were readouts actually out of each meeting that Blinken had in China, the tone out of that meeting was fairly positive,、um, and it sounded like they came to some pretty practical、um, uh, outcomes. Uh, the next day, Blinken met with Wang Yi,、uh, who is the top foreign policy official、uh, on the party side、uh, of the Chinese Communist Party,、uh, and and there, the tone in that readout was much more strident, and there, Wang Yi really placed the blame on the U.S. You know, he said that. The reason for tensions in the relationship is because of your erroneous perceptions of us, and you know he was really sort of pounding the table a bit, sort of saying there needs to be a choice that is made. Either it is dialogue or confrontation, cooperation or conflict. So that meeting appeared to be a bit more negative in tone, or at least the readout was right. Yes, that's right.、Uh, and particularly here, I'm referring to the Chinese readout. And the last meeting was with Xi Jinping, and that was for a short 35 minutes. And there, what's notable was the seating arrangement of that particular meeting. And in pictures that have been published, we see that Xi Jinping is sitting at the head of this long table. And flanked on the two sides by the U.S. delegation and his own Chinese delegation, and so you have sort of Blinken sitting there at the head of the U.S. side, you know, really looking up to Xi Jinping, you know, in a sort of student-teacher sort of way, and of course that was quite purposeful. You know, I think here, and and I want to come back to to the Wang Yi statement as well. I think here what we see quite clearly is that、uh, for the Chinese, it was really important to telegraph that they were not the demandeurs of this meeting. The U.S. asked for this,、uh, and they accepted, and so that was very much the image that they wanted to give off. And I. Think that a reason for this is that they wanted to carve out a bit of space for themselves domestically for what is to come in the next couple of months, which is likely going to be increased engagement and a softer tone all around. In other words, the more hawkish readout from the meeting with Wang Yi and the signaling from the meeting with Xi Jinping. Could be a good sign. In other words, I mean, it could be preparing the ground at home for more engagement with the U.S. Yeah, I think so. I tend to read it as the Chinese, right, laying the groundwork for the next couple of months. So let's come to some of the things that they talked about, according to the readouts. And so China concerned about U.S. economic pressure, and basically this comes down to, as we heard up top, what is now called de-risking. So not decoupling, which would sort of see more serious efforts to separate out trade, but basically stopping China getting its hands on some things, particularly on advanced semiconductors. 
I think Blinken, at least according to the American readouts of this visit, it seems that a lot of emphasis or core goal of this visit for Blinken was to make the point to the Chinese that the U.S. isn't decoupling and that instead the U.S. is, as he put it, about de-risking and diversifying. So what the U.S. is saying here is that we're not seeking to completely disentangle our two economies. After all, we reached $700 billion of trade last year. It would be an impossibility to cut off you know, trade. What we're talking about is a more targeted series of measures meant to ensure our own national security, and particularly in the technological realm. A phrase that's often used is, it's a small yard, high fence approach, meaning that the U.S. is only uh, targeting those exports and those investments that touch upon the most sensitive and strategic areas. And so that includes the most advanced semiconductors. So as you mentioned, the U.S. is beginning to implement export controls. And so that includes banning access to the chips themselves, but also the equipment and the know-how to build them. These aren't the chips that are used in our iPhones, in our everyday lives, but the ones that are used in supercomputers and potentially hypersonic missiles. So the sorts of weapons that the U.S. doesn't want to see the Chinese developing, particularly using U.S. technology. So Blinken, you know, is trying to say to the Chinese, it's simply in our interests that certain technologies don't go to China to advance their nuclear buildup, to use technology for repressive purposes. And so he sent this message to the Chinese. Now, I'm not sure that the Chinese have not found the shift from decoupling to de-risking particularly persuasive. They don't buy that, actually, that's what the US is doing, de-risking, not decoupling. Well, they do believe it, but they still don't like it. So first of all, you know, China's general response to the economic measures that the US um, has implemented is you're containing us, you are stymieing our economic development, and you're using the pretense of national security to do so. Right. And so for them, the shift to de-risking is problematic, I think, because it is a phrase that compared with decoupling sounds much more reasonable. And so the U.S., well, first of all, it came from European Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen. Okay, so it came from Europe. Uh, and then the U and Washington sort of picked up on that. And then we saw that the G7 has now endorsed it. And so I think that's part of the reason why China finds this problematic. They see it as dangerous because by using the word de-risking, the U.S. and the West has been able to build a broader consensus that these countries now will use to pursue their economic 
strategy vis-a-vis China. So we're talking about, you know, looking at outbound investment, we're looking at export controls of technologies, and economic dependencies on China. And so I think that's why the Chinese have assumed this sort of rhetorical posture to be anti-de-risking. So that's on the trade side. The one thing that we know that the two sides didn't agree on was to re-establish the military-to-military contact, something that the U.S., has pushed for the Chinese, in essence, said no. Before we get into what the Chinese think about them and why they're resistant, do you want to just talk about those military-to-military contacts, what there's been in place before? Yeah, so there has long been a number of sort of regular meetings that have been a system, really, of meetings that have been in place since the 90s between the US and China. And The most important ones are the ones at the working level between uniformed officers to really talk about a set of rules and understandings that the two sides have reached on the types of behaviors, operational behaviors that are deemed professional and safe when the two sides uh, warships and planes encounter each other. And so that is one. So those sort of regularized meetings between the two militaries. Another one is a telephone link that exists between the uh, Department of Defense and the Defense Ministry on the Chinese side. And this is a, a telephone link that really allows senior military and defense officials to first schedule a call with each other about whatever issues uh, might arise and to sort of take that call. Um, So it's a means of contacting each other uh, outside of an official meeting or visit. And that has served its purpose uh, in the past to sort of dispel misreadings of each other's intentions So it seems that Blinken, you know, was referring to military to military communications in general. I was told that there was no mention of a specific mechanism or channel. So he spoke about this generally, and the Chinese have not agreed to restore those channels. Now, this is an issue because we have seen recently a handful of close encounters. One was an encounter between the two sides' military planes in the South China Sea, uh, and the other was between a U.S. destroyer and a Chinese warship uh, in the Taiwan Strait, in which the Chinese warship acted unprofessionally and cut across the bow of the U.S. destroyer at close distance. So it's worrisome, uh, actually, that the Chinese didn't agree to restore these channels at a time when these channels have become particularly important. And so China, presumably, doesn't want an incident like that to escalate. But it is also, as you say, has been resistant to these military-to-military channels. Do you want to just sort of say a little bit about why why it's so reticent to re-establish them? Yeah, I think that 
the Chinese continue to be skeptical that these sorts of communications uh, are in their interest.、Um, not only these sorts of communications, but the establishment of more rules to govern these encounters. You know, they believe that these sorts of discussions will actually reduce risk for the U.S. by giving the U.S. a safety belt, by giving the U.S. A, a clear ceiling as to how far the Chinese will escalate. And so they're worried that in doing that, they'll actually encourage more behavior from the U.S. that they don't want to see, namely. More American military presence and activities close to China, and these are basically American ships sailing, American planes flying in the Taiwan Straits and the South China Sea, patrolling, showing the U.S. presence, presumably conducting surveillance, generally sort of challenging China's maritime claims. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and just to add, you know, the Chinese, in their sort of what they like to call struggle against. U.S. hegemony, you know, it is very much part of their playbook to engage in calibrated escalation, right? To, in essence, remind the U.S. of the costs of their military activities, to induce more caution on the U.S. side. They probably don't think that the U.S. will, you know, leave, but what they're trying to achieve here is just. To encourage the U.S. to not increase activities, and so what's problematic about that is embedded in that logic is the assumption that they can keep it calibrated, and that they have the situation under control, and that their form of struggle won't accidentally lead to a larger crisis. And the issue there is, of course, there's always human error. There's always the potential for something unintended to occur. Yeah, and what people often talk about is the Hainan Island incident, which what, more than twenty years ago now, this collision over the South China Sea between a Chinese plane and an American plane, and that led to this sort of quite elegantly choreographed sequence of diplomatic statements that sort of de-escalated things between the two sides. And people often say now it's almost impossible to imagine that sort of coordinated diplomacy now, given how fraught relations are between the two countries. Right. I mean, a, a balloon, you know, derailed the relationship for months. Can you imagine if an incident that involved casualties, what that would do to the relationship? And Amanda, do you think it makes a difference to the Sort of difficulties in getting the military to military track started again. That the U.S. has sanctioned the Chinese Minister of Defense Li Shangfu. Yes, definitely. So when the two,、uh, uh, you know, defense heads were in Singapore a couple of weeks ago,、um, the U.S. tried to get a meeting between Austin and Li, and and ultimately、uh, the Chinese side denied it. The organizers of the Shangri-La dialogue even put them at the same table at the opening dinner. I think in the hopes of you know, spurring some spontaneous discussion. And、uh, yeah, I mean, I think the sanctions on Li、uh, is. It seems that the Chinese are not going to back down from that, at least for now. Well, the Chinese, but nor the U.S., right? Because there's no talk of lifting the sanctions on the defense minister. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. 
possible. And just to be clear, he sanctioned because China purchased Russian military equipment some years ago, right? And so the US has requested meetings between Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Lee and are wondering why Lee might be a bit reticent to meet with his US counterpart while he's under US sanctions. So I think the thing to remember here is he was sanctioned when he was in a different position. So he was the head of uh, procurement. Though now he's the Chinese Minister of Defense and the US wants to uh, to meet him. So right, that that's a fair point. I mean, they didn't anticipate that he would be defense minister. I, I don't know the Biden administration consideration on this, but I imagine that they would come under significant domestic pressure for doing something like that, for lifting sanctions. Right. Yeah, I'm sure that's uh, that, that, that's true. So Taiwan, the U.S. So as we talked about last time you were on, the U.S. doing a lot to build up Taiwanese defenses, leaning in quite hard on deterrence in some ways, understandably, given everything that's happened in Ukraine. And one of the things we talked about last time was that those efforts should be paired with clear signals that the US doesn't want to change the status quo, that it doesn't support Taiwanese independence. And on that, Blinken seemed to hit all the right talking points in Beijing, though I guess it would have been a bit strange had he said anything different. Yeah, I would say that the two sides recited the things that they were both supposed to say. Right. I mean, particularly on the US side, you know, there's a sort of a series of words, you know, one is supposed to say, and he, he sort of said all of them, you know, he said, we remain committed to our one China policy, with the three US China communiques, the Taiwan relations act, the six assurances, so a listing of all the sort of policies that um, deter- that is the sort of foundation of US policy towards the Taiwan Strait. He said, we do not support Taiwan's independence and that we oppose unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. So, yes, very much U.S. policy, a restatement of that, but still positive that he said it in China, because as we have discussed, uh, it's important that the U.S. Uh, repeatedly say that U.S. policy has not changed. Same with the Chinese. You know, the Chinese have said, again, that Taiwan is the core issue and its centrality really to US-China relations. And on Ukraine, I mean, what do you think? Blinken again said that he had sort of warned China off, but that the US, the administration didn't see any evidence that the Chinese government itself was giving Russia weapons. So on Ukraine, um, what Blinken said in a uh, press briefing after his meetings in China was that, indeed, as you say, they see no evidence that the Chinese government is supplying lethal assistance uh, to Russia. But he noted that there were still continuing concerns that Chinese firms might be providing technology uh, to Russia. Um, He also said that, um, that the U.S. would welcome China playing a constructive role along with other countries, to work towards a just peace uh, in Ukraine, and noted that there were parts of China's peace plan that converged with the U.S. position, particularly that the international community should work to protect Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. Um, But he also made the point that it was important that it's not just about having peace, but a just and durable peace. And there he's pointing to 
lingering questions over exactly what China's position is on a settlement.、Um, the Chinese envoy Li Hui、uh, went to Europe and visited a number of capitals、uh, in May, and you know I think that visit was good in the sense that it sent a signal of China's seriousness. In playing a positive role, but it also left、uh, unanswered this question of, you know, what sort of peace settlement China would push for.、Um, in the media, there were reports that the special envoy was suggesting a ceasefire in Ukraine that involved recognizing Russian、uh, occupation of.、Uh, Of the territories that it currently holds in Ukraine,、uh, and this was subsequently denied、uh, by both the Ukrainians and the Chinese. So, as you say, some good reasons to be skeptical about China's mediation in Ukraine. In the Gulf, though, China's diplomacy has been a bit more successful. Right, Beijing brokered this deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran that we've talked about on previous episodes. Built on other efforts, other diplomacy by Iraq, by Oman, and、uh, actually, I was just in Muscat in in Oman, and I think the sense in the Gulf is that Beijing's role was welcome. Its influence helped clinch the deal. I guess there's still maybe a question about how much political capital China would throw behind making sure the two sides implement what they agreed, if there was sort of signs they were stalling. But for now, at least, both Tehran and Riyadh seem both to have an interest in moving forward. What do you think Beijing hoped to get and actually achieved with its diplomacy in the Gulf? So I think that this was certainly a diplomatic success for the Chinese, and that、uh, it served their interests、uh, in the sense that their success in helping Iran and Saudi Arabia reach a rapprochement sends a signal to the world. That China is a constructive actor for peace,、uh, and that it can provide, you know, alternative leadership that is different from the U.S. And so I think that was important for China. And of course, it also sent a signal to Washington that Chinese influence in the Middle East has considerably grown. So, broadly speaking, obviously positive that Blinken was there. Positive that they're striking a new tone. Positive that this may lead to sort of renewed diplomatic relations. But Amanda, tell me if this is right. The Chinese framing of the trip and of the relationship more broadly is still very different to that of the U.S. Right? I mean, the Chinese are not accepting the way that the U.S. articulates the U.S.-China relations, competition in some areas, cooperation in others. Beijing doesn't accept that. Even if presumably it recognizes that it is in reality competing with the U.S. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think where we see convergence is that the two sides want more stability in the relationship. Neither side wants、um, the relationship to spiral into conflict. So that's where they converge, but. As for how to prevent、uh, too much instability, I think those approaches might still be different. You know, the U.S. framing continues to be that 
we should, at the same time that we compete vigorously with each other, we should also cooperate. And we should reduce the costs of competition by engaging in dialogue, by mitigating the risks, by setting up guardrails. And the Chinese response has consistently been,、um, you can't have it both ways.、Um, you, you can't, you know, you can't compete with us and also seek to cooperate with us. And the reason for that is because. The Chinese simply don't want to make it easier for the U.S. to compete with them. You know, their goal is to reduce economic, military, political pressures from the U.S. and its allies, and it doesn't want to make that competition easier by giving in and legitimizing that framing, buying into it.、Um, but it also has a strategy of. Making competition less appealing by making the risks of competition clearer. So we we alluded to this a bit, right, on the sort of military to military front, and so this carries over to this sort of overall relationship as well. Which then brings us, I guess, to U.S. politics, because in Congress, the parties sort of outbidding each other to see who can be more hawkish toward Beijing. I mean, how do you think the trip is going to go down in D.C.? Well, I mean, even before the trip, we had Republicans come out quite publicly, you know, saying that Blinken was undermining U.S. national security. We had Representative McCall, who's a Republican from Texas and the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee, you know, he threatened to subpoena Blinken. He wanted him to produce documents that detailed the list of retaliatory actions the U.S. was considering against China. So even prior to this visit, a lot of folks in Washington saw this visit as Washington kowtowing to Beijing, and so the domestic environment is not going away. Um, it will certainly be, I think, a limitation that the Biden administration will have to deal with. We're also, you know, entering into election season, and so these sorts of voices, the sort of domestic grandstanding, is likely to increase. So, in a way, I think the Biden administration will come under. Some pressure to deliver something concrete that serves U.S. interests that's coming out of this renewed engagement. And what we've seen is really a, a, an effort, I think, following this visit by the State Department to shape the narrative of this visit. I think it's quite evident that the administration is very sensitive to domestic politics. And as you say, very sensitive to domestic politics. Obviously, an eye on the twenty twenty four elections, though it's hardly like the administration has a dovish record on China, right? I mean, in many ways, it's been tougher than Trump, particularly in the way it's built economic pressure on China. It's worked with allies, right? Some of the specific complaints that were coming out before the visit was, you know, the administration is basically slow rolling some of these decisions that they think will trigger China, right? And so this includes an investigation, the report on an investigation that was conducted on the surveillance balloon 
that China flew over the U.S. It's uh, there's another report on COVID origins. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, discussions of U.S. screening on outbound investments in China. So, you know, there's accusations that the Biden administration has delayed some of these decisions so that they can get engagement. Um, but, you know, I think that um, t- if you step back all right, and look at what the Biden administration uh, has achieved. And if you step back and you look at the sort of relative positions of the two sides, you know, the U.S. still has many more cards to play than China. And, you know, the Biden administration has made a lot of progress in building consensus with like-minded countries. We talked about this on the economic front, in shoring up its security alliances and partnerships in the Asia-Pacific. I tend to think that perhaps the fixation on some of these sort of smaller decisions to time these other decisions are, are sort of small and pale in comparison to some of the larger moves that the Biden administration has made already vis-a-vis China. So I think the administration understands the risks quite clearly. Um, but I think they also feel like they're in a position of strength and there's some confidence there that's propelling this uh, outreach. And so what should we be looking for now? So there's talk of a US, um, of a Biden, she meeting sometime in the autumn during the APEC summit, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation meeting in San Francisco. You mentioned earlier some of the other U.S. officials that might visit Beijing? I mean, what should we be watching for? Um, Yeah, so a couple of things. I think it's possible that Raimondo and Yellen and maybe Kerry might make a visit and Kerry for climate change issues. Um, In the readout with Qingang, it looks like Qingang accepted uh, an invite from Blinken to visit the U.S. So we might see a reciprocal Qingang visit um, to Washington in the coming months. Um, working level discussions might resume. Uh, a working group on fentanyl was, I think, established between the two sides. That's the drug, some of the core, the precursor chemicals for fentanyl. Much of it's produced in Mexico, but the precursor chemicals are all Chinese, right? And I think the US wants to stop those precursor chemicals getting to Mexico to be made into fentanyl to cross the US border. And I think that the Chinese have already cooperated with the U.S. to some extent on this, but I, that Washington is seeking more. And, you know, I think there was at least one clear output. And in the coming weeks, we should see if this is actually implemented. But the two sides agreed in an increase in the number of flights between the two countries. We should look to whether journalists are allowed to return Um, American journalists to China and these sorts of people to people exchanges. What does it look like in the coming weeks? But a lot of this, the sort of higher level meetings, I think, as you say, will be meant to pave the way uh, for another Xi Biden meeting in San Francisco at APEC. So maybe, Amanda, I can just ask one last one. I mean, as you said up top, the trip, obviously good news. But in some ways, a trip that really was just about re-establishing senior level contacts between Beijing and Washington, you know, that that can be seen as good news is really a sign of how bad things have gotten. And there's obviously a wide gulf in many ways between 
Beijing and Washington, not just on how to manage the relationship, but also more broadly, that the world's two biggest powers, in essence, have conflicting visions of the future of Asian security, of Indo-Pacific security. They just want different things. I mean, China sees itself as the hegemon in Asia. The US and its allies don't want that. I mean, those visions are sort of fundamentally in conflict with one another. So, you know, and again, I realize this is a, I realize this is a big question, but do you see any hope that at some point we'll see Beijing and Washington in a place where they can sort of talk together, think through sort of coexistence, sort of how to find a way to sort of bridge those competing visions? Right. So despite this visit, despite, you know, agreement to to talk, basically, there's these fundamental issues that remain unresolved and that will continue to irritate the relationship and that will motivate continued military posturing on the two sides in proximity to each other that increases the likelihood for something spiraling out of control, right? And right, we're, I think, nowhere close to some sort of positive vision of coexistence in the Asia-Pacific. At most, the two sides are, I guess, if you're being generous, inching their way towards that conversation in their agreement to discuss principles that guide the relationship. But those principles are vague, right, even if they could agree to them. So one, they haven't begun in earnest those discussions. They were agreed that there would be discussions in Bali they didn't actually, it seems, start them. The balloon incident happened. So, you know, they've sort of gone back to that and said, OK, we will engage in those discussions. And the U.S. side is basically saying, OK, we will entertain these discussions as long as we get some sort of output, some clear, concrete output, because this is in very much Chinese fashion to sort of say, let's let's arrive at some set of flexible and sort of vague principles to guide the relationship. And they'll generally be quite positive principles, right? But in the readouts between the US and China, between a number of meetings now for the last two years, we have seen the formulation of, uh, of a couple of things that the two sides seem to be comfortable with. So on the US side, the Chinese call it the five no's. And they're saying the five no's are this, that the U.S. does not seek a new Cold War. It does not seek to change China's system, its political system. Uh, its alliances are not directed at China. The U.S. does not support Taiwan independence, and it does not seek conflict with China. Um, and so this was restated in the readouts out of Blinken's visit this time around. Uh, and as for the Chinese, um, in the readout between Xi and Biden in Bali, um, the Chinese said the following, and I'm terming it the three does nots in Chinese fashion. So the Chinese said China does not seek to change the existing international order or interfere in the, inter in the internal affairs of the U.S. and has no intention to challenge or displace the U.S., so I think that those statements of non-intent is useful in the sense that they address specifically the core anxieties of the two sides. 
So, and that's a good start. But as you point out, what's lacking is the positive, right? But, you know, they're saying we won't do these things to each other, but we haven't gotten to the point where they're constructing a, a new security architecture or formulating a sort of, we don't do these things, but what do we do in the positive to coexist? Amanda, thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on China-US relations on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, questions or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. And I very much hope you'll join us again next time.